I'm a type of person that likes to close the deal. I don't like leaving things to chance. I'm not gonna wait for that dead-looking tree to fall in the garage or, or wait for my boss to notice that I spent the extra time on that contract. I go for checkups, oil changes, I, I go to the gym. I do the work. If something's not right at, at home or the office, even at church, I want to fix it. I like to do what I can. If I'm honest, I reserve faith for th things I can't solve. It's like my last uh, ditch effort rather than my first line response. I mean, if someone is sick, I want a doctor. And if my kid is having trouble at school, I want a plan. And it's not like God is sharing the blueprints. Faith can feel so, let's wait and see. Sometimes trusting God sounds so passive, like doing nothing. I like to control what I can. Is that so wrong? Well, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I wonder how many of us might be described as control freaks. <laughs> I see that hand. People who have this obsessive need to want to manage things and manage people and take charge. Maybe the better way to ask is how many of our family members and coworkers might describe us as control freaks. We might be surprised by the answer. Now, probably none of us want to have that label applied to us, and I don't think it's quite right to apply that label to Jeff, the uh, conscientious Christian we just met here in that video. It's just that like many of us, Jeff has a hard time just letting go of things, leaving things to, to other people or to chance and, and, and even to God. I mean, these things are important. Career, health, finances, relationships. I mean, we, we want to take charge of these kinds of things. We want to be responsible. We want, we want to be capable. I mean, we're Americans after all, right? Most of us. Our nation was founded on the idea of independence. We believe in the individual pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. And if that means pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, then, then that's what we're going to do. We're not only Americans, many of us, we are New Englanders too. Self-reliant, <laughs> self self-sufficient. I came across a survey a few years ago that uh, reveals that New Englanders are more likely to work outside the home than any other part of the country. New Englanders are more likely to have advanced degrees, less likely to receive some form of federal aid, and more likely to feel confident about their future. We like to do it ourselves, don't we? It's not just that we're Americans or New Englanders. It's that we're humans. And we just have this innate desire to want, to want to do it ourselves, to do it our way. It's one of the first instincts that shows up pretty early in life. One of the first sentences a child puts together is, I can do it myself. Whether it's tying a shoe or who knows what else it might be. 
Now, it's not all bad, this responsible, self-reliant, self-sufficient kind of drive. I mean, after all, God put us here in this world to take care of it and to take care of ourselves. He gave us minds and bodies and the freedom to use them to make our lives and the world a better place. The problem is the self-reliant tendency can get in the way of our relationship with God. Because while it's true he gave us minds and bodies and told us to take care of the world and take care of ourselves, he meant for us to do it in relationship with him, in dependence upon him. But again and again, like Adam and Eve, we have said, no thanks God, I'll take it from here. Again and again, like Adam and Eve, we have made a mess of things, of our lives and, and of the world. And thousands of years of history have told us that when it comes to fixing ourselves and fixing the world, we can't really do it ourselves. So what we've been learning here in this series is that our only hope is grace. God's grace poured out on us. Grace is undeserved favor. It's unexpected kindness. It's unbelievable goodness. That grace can forgive us for all of our failures and it can set us free to actually become the people and the world that we were meant to be in the first place. And God has shown us that grace by sending his son Jesus into the world who showed us what a life of grace looks like, who died on the cross paying the price for our failures and then rose from the dead opening the door to new and eternal life. And like like the boys on that Thai soccer team we talked about last week, trapped in that flooded cave, our only hope for rescue is to hold on to Jesus and let him carry us out of the darkness and into the light. Like me and that Lexus driver whose car I backed into, we talked about last week. When God looks at us and the damage we've done and says, we're good, all we can do is receive that by grace. Now, if you missed that story last week, you might want to go back and hear it. I don't know that I've ever gotten as much positive feedback on a story I've told as that one. You're all getting a kick out of the fact that I backed into somebody in the parking lot, so I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, go listen. But that's grace, undeserved favor, unbelievable goodness. And many of us, many of us here have been saved by that grace. We've been forgiven. We've been set free. But here's the problem. Having been saved by that grace, we try to live by good works. Having trusted Christ to forgive us and set us free, we now want to live the rest of our lives in our own strength. Like Jeff, the conscientious Christ follower we just met, we view faith as kind of a last resort rather than a first response. When all else fails, pray. Did I mention that survey of New Englanders were not only more likely to work, more likely to have advanced degrees, more likely to feel confident about our future, we are also least likely to pray. We just rather do it ourselves, even sometimes after coming to faith in Christ. But as we learned last week, the grace that saves us is the grace that sustains us. 
that when it comes to living our spiritual lives, we can't do it in our own effort. We can only do it in Christ's strength. But how do you do that? How do you live by grace? That's what Jeff wants to know. How do you experience grace every day? That's what we'd like to talk to today. I'd like, I promised last week we'd answer that question. So uh, let's continue in our study of this book of the New Testament called Galatians, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to believers in the churches in a region called Galatia. And this church, these believers, had a tendency to take matters into their own hands. And that's what Paul writes to them about. So once again, we're going to find that Paul wastes no words in getting right to the point. Okay, Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus, Jesus was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you ever written a letter or sent an email to someone who you thought was making a big mistake, getting involved with the wrong person or quitting a good job or moving to Texas or something crazy like that? (laughs) Sorry, sorry. What were you thinking, you might have said. And that's what Paul's saying to these Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Interesting word on Halloween week. It's actually the only time in the whole New Testament this particular word is used. Paul seems to be saying that these believers had kind of been mesmerized, that there was almost something demonic about, about this false teaching they'd come under that was deceiving them and leading them away from the gospel. What Paul's talking about is these false teachers who came in after he and his team left and came into these new believers and convinced them that even though they had trusted Christ for their salvation, they now had to live up to all the requirements of the Jewish law in order to be God's people. That was a great burden. There were a lot of laws. And to the Gentiles, they were all brand new laws. And so now these these believers who at one time were feeling forgiven and free suddenly are feeling burdened and and pressured and anxious because they could never live up to all these human standards, all these religious requirements. And so they were feeling guilty and defeated. What are you thinking, Paul says? Don't you remember, Galatians? When I came, I preached Christ to you and him crucified Don't you remember all you had to do to be forgiven and receive the Holy Spirit was to to receive it by faith, to believe in what Christ has done. So having begun that way by trusting Christ, why are you now trying to continue by trusting yourselves? So just to kind of find ourselves in the story, let's pause here for a moment. I'd like you to think back to a moment when you perhaps first trusted Christ to to save you, to forgive you when you became God's child, if that has happened to you, if you've come to that kind of a moment. Maybe you can remember when and where you were. Maybe it was a long time ago when you were a child. Maybe it was more recently. I'd like you to think about your posture, your attitude when you came to God that first time. Did you show up and say to God, here I am, God, lucky you. (laughs) Or did you more likely come in a spirit of humility? and gratitude, and maybe even brokenness. Uh, this past week, I had a chance to, uh, to attend the, the annual banquet of the Black Ministerial Alliance. 
The BMA is a network of churches around greater Boston, churches that kind of partner together to serve and reach the city in Jesus' name. And so the banquet every year is a great way to celebrate what God's doing around the city and to connect with many of our friends and partners around the city. Well, towards the end of the banquet, a surprise guest appeared. It was the mayor, Marty Walsh, came in right at the last minute. And he came to present an award to someone. But before he presented the award, he, he offered some rather candid remarks about the importance of faith and about his own personal journey. How, how he was raised in the church. How as a child he was healed of cancer through the prayers of his mother, he believes. How he grew up doing all the things that you're supposed to do religiously in the life of the church. But then as an adult, he wandered from it all and found himself eventually addicted to alcohol. And after years of denial and failed efforts to help himself, he finally, on a July night in 1995, fell to his knees and called on God. Then he said to us, and that's where everyone's journey has to begin, on our knees. That's the mayor, on our knees. And my guess is that's where your journey began too. Maybe not literally on your knees, but you're, you're coming to God, you're coming to discover life with him began with the moment of humility and repentance and brokenness and complete dependence on his mercy. You realize you just had nothing. You had nothing to offer, just a mess on the inside. And, and so you, you received his forgiveness, his mercy, freedom. And I want you to remember how free and relieved and hopeful and at peace you felt in that moment. That's what theologians call justification. God looks at us and says, we're good because of what Christ has done for you on the cross. Well, having begun like that, Paul says, on our knees in dependence, why are we trying now to go forward in our own strength as if we can do it ourselves? After beginning by means of the Spirit, he says, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? And by flesh, Paul's referring to our own efforts, our, our own good works, our own religious performance, our own do-gooding, that sort of thing. And for the Galatians, that, that meant the, the religious ritual laws of Judaism. Circumcision, observing the Sabbath, all the dietary laws. For us, in our context, it probably means things like having daily devotions, going to church, obeying the rules, serving, being kind to our neighbors, holy living, those kinds of things. And we do those things hoping that, that God will bless us because we did. That if we do enough of those good things that he'll answer our prayers, that he'll bless our family, that he'll expand our career, that he'll grow our church. But with all that religious do-gooding, all it does is it just heaps more pressure and burden on us to perform, to, to meet some human standards. And it's just never quite enough doesn't matter how, how many good deeds we do. We're never sure there are enough good deeds. And even when we do get it right sometimes, it's only a matter of time before we mess it up again. It's not a very fun way to live. That guy, Jeff, the conscientious Christ follower, it doesn't look like he's having a lot of fun to me. What are you thinking? Paul asked the Galatians, and he asks us. Don't you remember that it's grace alone that saves you? And don't you remember that you received that grace simply by faith? 
And to drive that point home to his Jewish readers, he, he takes them all the way back in history to show them that this is how people have always related to God, by grace and by faith. He takes them all the way back to Abraham. So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God, because the righteous will live by faith. Now, Abraham, of course, was the founder of their faith, the one to whom God said, I will make of you a great nation, and through you I will bless all the peoples of the earth. Now, when God made that promise to Abraham and Sarah, they had no children, zero. And they were old, really old, way beyond childbearing years. But one night, God takes Abraham out and he says, look up at the sky, and he says, count the stars if you can, so shall your descendants be. Now, that was a ridiculous promise. Abraham and Sarah had nothing at all to bring to that possibility. But Abraham believed God, Genesis tells us. He trusted that God would keep his word, and God credited that belief to him as righteousness. That night, God looked at Abraham and said, we're good, we're good. But here's the thing, here's the thing that shocked his Jewish readers. This happened before Abraham was circumcised. It happened before the Moses gave the law. It happened before the religion called Judaism had even been invented. Abraham was made right with God simply on the basis of faith. Turning to God in repentance, saying, God, I got nothing, and receiving all that God had to offer. Believing God was good and could keep his word. And if Abraham was saved by grace through faith and Christ hadn't even come yet, how much more are we saved by grace through faith in what Christ has done on the cross? Now, this happens to be Reformation Sunday. This is the Sunday in the life of the church, a certain branch of the church, in which we remember the, the day back in 1517 when a priest named Martin Luther posted 95 theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg. He and his fellow reformers were protesting the religion of the day, which in their view had corrupted the gospel by adding works to faith. The idea was it's not enough simply to trust Christ for salvation. You also have to fulfill the rules and the rituals of the church. In those days, Christians weren't just trying to earn their way into heaven. They were literally trying to buy their way into heaven by giving financial gifts to the church. Well, the cry of the reformers was that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And as soon as you add anything else to that equation, they said, it's no longer the gospel. It's no longer good news because we got nothing. We certainly don't have enough when it comes to making ourselves right with God. The only way to be saved is to come to God on our knees. Dependence on him. 
But it's not just the only way to be saved, Paul's saying. It's the only way to live by grace through faith in Christ alone. But now, how do you do that practically? It all sounds very spiritual and very wonderful. But, but how do you live by grace? You can't live on your knees. Sooner or later, you've got to get up and go to work. You've got to take care of your family. You've got to go out and engage with the wider world. So how do you live by grace? How can we experience grace every day and not just the day we first believed? Well, I think Paul has an answer for us back in chapter 2 in some rather famous but kind of mysterious verses. He writes, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And as I said, these are famous but rather mysterious verses. They sound really spiritual, don't they? But what do they actually mean? I never really picked up on this before, but the particular words Paul uses here when he says crucified with Christ, he uses the very same words the gospel use, use to describe those two thieves who died with Jesus that day on Golgotha, who literally died with Jesus. Paul is saying that if we believe in Christ's death on the cross, that it's like we, something in us dies with him. That old, self-centered, self-sufficient, self-reliant way of living, that dies. Not only that, it's replaced by something new. The risen life of Jesus Christ who conquered death and rose from the grave. God sends his spirit, the spirit of his son, to live within us. And that's why Paul says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In other words, I no longer live in my strength, I live in divine strength. Now, the idea here, we've talked about it before, is that living the Christian life isn't a matter of gritting our teeth and trying harder to be good and not to sin. Because that's just not going to work in the end. Rather, we, 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 we live the Christian life simply by trusting Christ to, to live his life through us. So we live the Christian life not by trying harder, but by staying closer. By staying closer to Christ. Because the closer we are to Christ, the easier it is to trust him. And the more we trust him, the more freedom and power we have to live the way he made us and calls us to live. Now, we sometimes call this thing the exchanged life. Christ's life for our life. And it kind of became popularized by one of the most famous missionaries of all time, a man named James Hudson Taylor. Uh, who back in the 1800s took the, the good news of Christ to the, to the continent of China, the nation of China. Now, Hudson Taylor was a devoted servant of Christ. He spent 51 years there in China and laid out his life in service to the Chinese people, starting churches, preaching the gospel, serving the poor and the needy. He gave his whole life there. But at one point, after 20 years of following and serving Christ, Taylor came to a crisis of faith. In spite of his devotion and his faithfulness, he was experiencing very little joy or victory in his life. At one point, he wrote a letter to a friend. I prayed, agonized, fasted, 
strove, made resolutions, read the word more diligently, sought more time for meditation, but all without avail. Every day, almost every hour, the consciousness of sin oppressed me. By his own admission, he was in a desperate place until he received a letter from a friend. A friend who reminded him that our faith is strengthened not by striving after faith, but by resting on the faithful one. Not by striving, but by resting. In other words, not by trying, but by trusting. And in that moment, it was like scales fell from Taylor's eyes. And he suddenly realized that that everything he needed to, to, to live the Christian life had already been given to him, poured into him by the life of Christ. All he had to do was let Christ live his life through him. And it began a radical change in his life. It brought him such joy and freedom. He wrote, the sweetest part is that I am no longer anxious about anything, for I know he is able to carry out his will in me. It makes no matter where he places me, for in the easiest position he must give me grace, and in the most difficult place his grace is sufficient. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So here's the idea. Instead of striving, we surrender. Instead of trying harder to be good, we trust Christ to live his life through us. It doesn't mean that we stop having devotions or we stop going to church or we stop loving our neighbor. Because he has so filled us with so many good things and so much grace that we simply want to share it with the rest of the world. Those things keep us closer to Christ. And when we fail to do those things, for whatever reason, we simply receive Christ's forgiveness and we carry on by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, little sidebar. It just so happens that Hudson Taylor's great, great, great-grandson, Jamie Taylor, is going to be speaking here next Sunday for Global Awareness Week. He, too, is, has devoted his life to missions work in China, and he's going to be our keynote speaker for our Global Awareness Week. So I love when that happens. All right, now, I, I've laid a lot on you. There's a lot of theology here, a lot of abstract thinking uh, as we talk about this exchange life idea. So I was trying to think of a way to illustrate this. How could I help myself and all of us Get a visual picture of what this is all about. And I think I might have come up with something, so let me share it with you as we try to finish up here and see if that helps make sense out of all of this. Okay, let's imagine that this life, this glass, represents our lives. God brings us into the world and he gives us a self, a physical, material self. He gives us body, mind, and soul. We, we have a certain life, kind of a life, but on the inside, in terms of spiritual life, we're empty. In fact, the Bible says spiritually we're dead apart from a relationship with God. So at some point, we understand that. We hit our knees, as we described, and we receive the life of God within us. And he fills us with life, the life of his son Jesus, the Holy Spirit. And it's, it's fresh and it's clean and it's good. It refreshes us and the world. And it's wonderful. And we're off to a great start in this new life that God has given to us. But then things begin to happen. Someone has something we don't have and we get a little green. 
with envy. And a little bit of jealousy creeps into our lives and just kind of clouds the water a little bit. It's not quite as fresh and clean as it used to be. And then something happens to us, someone treats us not quite right, and we get angry. And we, we say and do some hurtful things that, that hurt others and hurt our souls as well. And again, we begin to get muddier on the inside. And then we get kind of proud. we a little stubborn, a little self-righteous. We're going to take care of things. And that pride just makes things worse. So at a certain point, we realize this is not going in the right direction, so we need to fix it. We need to make this better. So we decide to brighten things up a little bit. Let's bring some good works into the equation. Let's bring some positivity. And we try some positive thinking and some good deeds to our neighbor, but no matter how many drops we put in there, there's no way it can overwhelm all the darkness that's already there. So we live with this for a while. It gets all stirred up inside us, and pretty soon it's just a great big mess, and it's not looking very, very good at all. And we realize that there's really nothing we can do, nothing we can add that's going to fix that and make it fresh and clean again. So then we say, well, you know what? Maybe I'll go back to God and I'll ask him to forgive me and to exchange his life for my life. And we allow his peace to replace our anger and his contentment to replace our envy and his humility to replace our pride. And as we receive more and more of this life of God, this life of Christ within us, it slowly overwhelms all the darkness that's inside us. And all we can do is receive it. We can't earn it. All we can do is let it flow freely into our lives, more and more grace until that grace has completely overwhelmed all the darkness was there. And once again, it's fresh and clean and good. So that is the exchanged life. Christ's life for our life. His peace for our discontent. His humility for our pride. And the only thing we can do is to receive it, to let grace flow into our lives. So it turns out the key to living the Christian life isn't trying harder to be good. It's simply trusting Christ to live his life through us. It's placing ourselves in a place where his grace can flow freely into our lives again. Now, how do we do that? Well, the things we've been talking about. You spend time in the Bible, letting him speak to you. You spend time talking and listening to God in prayer. You, we worship, whether here in a sanctuary on a Sunday or walking in the woods on a beautiful fall afternoon. We, we allow him to fill our lives to overflowing with his grace. And we do these things not, not to earn his favor, to prove how spiritual we are, but simply to receive more and more of his grace. And so what does it mean to live by grace? How do we experience grace every day? By allowing his life to flow freely into and out of our lives. We live by grace when we allow the life of Christ to flow freely into and out of our lives. It's not a passive way to live. 
It's not sitting on our hands and waiting for God to fix everything. It's actually an active, proactive way to live as we put ourselves in a place where we can receive all God's goodness. We intentionally turn to him and ask him to exchange his life for ours. So as we finish up today, I'd like to give us all a chance to experience this exchanged life. We have these grace walls uh, in our lobbies. These are places where we've invited you this fall to stop and write a little story of how you have experienced grace. And many of you have done that and shared some wonderful short little stories. We want to give you a chance to do that again today. So hopefully you received a little slip of yellow paper when you came in. And I'll ask you to kind of grab that now and have it handy. If you didn't, just think in your mind and you can grab one and do it on the way out. But I'd just like to suggest that in a moment you just kind of write out a simple little one statement story. Lord, I exchange my blank for your blank. It might be, I exchange my sadness for your joy. I exchange my guilt for your forgiveness. I'd encourage you to be as specific as you can. I exchange my bitterness towards someone for your grace towards that someone. I exchange my guilt over this for your forgiveness, whatever it might be. Be specific. So I'm going to give you a minute and just a moment to, to think about that, to search your heart, to find out what might be in there, muddying the waters a little bit, and then to name it and invite Christ to do something fresh. And as you do, I want you to imagine that water flowing freely into your soul. So I'm going to close our time with prayer, then allow you for a quiet moment or two to fill out uh, that little card, respond as you want to, and then your worship leader on each campus will come and close out the service. So let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for this life that you offer to us so freely, so graciously. Thank you that you want nothing more than for us to receive that light, that life, to, to live with you and for you now and forever. And thank you that all we have to do is receive it. So we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you might help each of us today to identify something that's getting in the way of our relationship with you, some way that we're relying on, our, on ourselves instead of you. And by your grace, may we exchange it May we receive your freedom and forgiveness in place of our guilt and fear. Lord, we're praying that whether it's for the first time or the hundredth time, we might experience grace today in Jesus' name.